Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Father, as people who aspire to follow you, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it to us, that you, through this word, would change us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In the ancient region of Phrygia, in the town of Gordium, there was an ox cart that was tied with a famously complicated knot, a knot so complex that no one was able to unravel it. And this knot had a prophecy attached to it, a prophetic word that said, when someone finally came along who had the intelligence, the genius to untie the Gordian knot, that that man, his destiny would be to rule Asia. Alexander the Great wanted to rule Asia, but he wasn't a patient man and he wasn't very good with knots. And so when he found himself in Gordium, confronted by the Gordian knot, famously, once again, Alexander the Great drew his sword and he simply sliced through it. An act of genius, people hailed it as a wonderful thing. Even today, people talk about uh, slicing the Gordian knot as a metaphor for lateral thinking of creativity. And Alexander was a genius. He was a genius on the level of the first kid who figured out that you could solve a Rubik's Cube by taking it apart and putting all the pieces back together and not having to do the math and and figure it all out. That's genius. And yet, by the terms of the word, by the terms of the, the prophecy, if you think about it, Alexander failed. He did not untie the Gordian knot. He just cut his way through it. Another aspect of the genius, we might say, is that he failed in such a way that he could convince himself and the world that he had actually succeeded. Sin is a knot. Sin is is a knot that is impossible for us to unravel, impossible to untie. In this phrase of the novelist Francois Moriac, it's a knot of vipers. But we're all geniuses after the fashion of Alexander the Great. When we're confronted by the problem of sin, we solve it, just not according to the rules. We sidestep it. We sidestep the problem. That's what Matthew 19 is about. If you can't sidestep 
Or if you can't solve the problem according to the rules, you can get around the problem in some clever way. You can avoid it, and it amounts to the same thing. You can convince yourself and the world that what you've done is actually genius. The two episodes in Matthew 19, the first episode where the Pharisees come and ask Jesus whether or not it's okay to divorce your wife for any reason, that story. And then the second episode where a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him and the guy's like, cool, I've done all of that. Those two episodes together in the big picture are both stories about sidestepping that knot of sin, about sidestepping the call to repentance. The problem is, as you're reading the story, as you're down in the weeds, it's it's hard sometimes to see how they're connected, the theme that unifies them, and why these stories make a lot of sense coming in Matthew 19 after we've just gone through Matthew 18 and what it says about repentance and forgiveness. And so what we're going to do is step back. And before we go into the, the trees, we're going to look at the forest. We're going to draw some observations about the chapter as a whole and what it tells us about sidestepping repentance. Repentance is hard. The call to repentance is a hard call, so clever people like us find ways to get around it. But those ways are deception. Ultimately, they amount to lying to yourself. Lying to yourself about sin or lying to yourself about yourself. And those are the two lies that we want to confront this morning. I'll give you a phrase to keep in mind. It's not, I guess it is alliterative, but it's better than alliterative. It's sibilant. Uh, here it is. We're all sinners in search of strategies for sidestepping repentance. I'll give it to you again. It's worth writing down. We're all sinners in search of strategies for sidestepping repentance. I like the sound of it. It has a hissy sort of sound, right? That alludes to that not of vipers that sin is. But it's also true, all of us. We're all sinners, constantly searching for strategies, for workarounds, for ways that we can sidestep the call, the need to repent of our sins. So I want to ask two questions. First, why? Why do we seek strategies for sidestepping repentance? And then also, like, how do you recognize those strategies when, when you're the one who's implementing them. So first, why do we do it? I think the answer is is pretty obvious. Repentance demands a lot from you. In order to repent, you have to acknowledge your own sin. And you have to do more than acknowledge your own sin. You also have to turn from it. Like when we repent of our sins, we don't just say, yes, I'm a sinner. We say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I resolve to turn from that sin. And now to follow Christ. In other words, in order to repent, you have to mortify your own pride. You have to deny your desire. You have to walk away from what you want if what you want, God says, is wrong. But doing that is contrary to our nature. Like, doing that goes against the grain like it goes against our, our hardwired urge to pursue our own happiness. No one ever made himself happy 
by mortifying his pride and denying himself what he desired. Instead, it's just the opposite, right? What we want to do, it seems obvious the thing that would make us happy and fulfilled is to nourish that pride, that sense of ourselves, and to fulfill our desires. That's what makes repentance hard, such a difficult call, not only to answer, but even to hear. Right? The human self, corrupted by sin, is always seeking to build itself up. We talked about the Song of Lamech last week, from Lamech to Babel to this very day. The human project has been to make a name for ourselves, to be strong and to show our strength, to be self-determining, to be self-defining. All of us as individuals are subject to these forces, but it's not just us as individuals, right? All human beings are corrupted by sin, but human beings aren't, aren't alone and isolated. We're together. Like we're building communities, we're building cities together, and the corruption of each one of us is transferred into the work of our hands. So it's not just that my heart tells me, do what you want, it's that I, together with you, build a society, a culture that also tells me the same thing, that affirms me in my desires, that tells me that what I want must be right for me, regardless of what any ancient book says. And when the world around me is telling me what I want to hear, is confirming me in that way, it is hard to hear anything else. It is hard to believe anything else. The world says you should fulfill your desires. You are what you desire. Your desire is what defines you. Don't be ashamed of it. Be proud. And the world tells us that. It's difficult not to listen. That message of repentance comes to us then as a challenge. Jesus challenges all of those things. He challenges what our hearts tell us. He challenges what our world tells us. He tells us that our sinful desires are destroying us, not making us. And that the only answer is to humble ourselves and to repent. Even deeper, Scripture challenges that basic assumption that we're constantly making that our desires are who we are. That we are defined by what we want and by what we do. In Romans 7 The Apostle Paul acknowledges his own sin and he acknowledges the power of his sin over him even as a follower of Jesus Christ. But in the act of naming that sin and confessing that sin, he also does something interesting. He distinguishes between himself and his sin. They are not the same thing. They do not define him those desires. He says, for I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He acknowledges a complexity in the fallen human heart that seeks to follow after Christ, divided now against itself, no longer defined by the desires that rule and reign, 
but instead by something else. That your desires could be in conflict with who you are and not revealing who you are. There is a great power of self-recognition that only comes when you can separate yourself from your sin. When you can separate yourself and who you are from the sinful things that you have done, only then can you begin to see yourself as you truly are. But that's a hard truth. So it's no surprise that we seek to get around it. So the question is, how can you tell when you're doing that? How can you tell when you're trying to sidestep the call to repentance? Well, Matthew gives us two case studies, if you will, two stories that illustrate different strategies for sidestepping repentance. But before we think about those stories, I want you to think about that question in the abstract. What are the signs? What are the red flags that I might look for to see when I'm doing this? I'm going to give you two things to think about. First, whenever you convince yourself that the Bible endorses whatever the world says is right, you should be skeptical. Whenever people tell you that this ancient alien book written by the Holy Spirit over the course of millennia by many different human authors in very different cultural contexts to us, actually, if you study it, basically teaches what everybody today, at least every right-thinking person today, already believes, you should be skeptical. How likely is it that any ancient text basically shares the values of the 21st century? It's unlikely. And in the case of the Bible, very unlikely indeed. When you find yourself hearing those things or thinking those things, that could be a sign that you're doing it, that you're trying to find a workaround, trying to sidestep the call to repentance. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible that you've been told the Bible condemns things that actually the Bible doesn't condemn. That does happen. There are people who've grown up in church who will tell you, hey, the Bible says this is wrong, but they only say it because they're not actually aware of what the Bible says and doesn't say. Right? They're ignorant of what it says. I'll give you one example. I I grew up in a church where everybody knew that the Bible said it was a sin to consume alcohol. Like that God, he made grape juice so that people could have something wine-like to drink without drinking wine because that was a sin, which is difficult to maintain if you've ever read the you know, Bible. It's hard to, to hold on to that. It's also hard if you're familiar with the history of the church, because before the 1800s, nobody in the church thought this. This was something that, that's really recent in the life of the church. It's interesting that something so unique could come so quickly to be the traditional teaching of the church. Well, that can only happen when we're no longer doing what we should do, which is studying the scripture. That's how you find out whether or not you're deceiving yourself. You see what the Bible actually says and see how it compares to what people are telling you the Bible teaches. So yeah, there could be traditional teachings, things you've heard that the Bible says that it doesn't actually say. But don't be surprised if you start reading the Bible and you find out that it doesn't just rubber stamp what right-thinking people today already believe. That it's actually more challenging, not less, to the values 
that we hold. Whenever you tell yourself that this is not a difficult book, that it's not challenging, that if you read it, it won't cut you to the heart and convict you of sins you never imagined were sinful, you are lying to yourself about what this word is. Here's another sign. Whenever you honor the teaching of the Bible in theory but ignore it in practice, that is a good sign that you are sidestepping repentance. Again, I grew up in church communities where we believed everything the Bible taught. And when we got to parts of the Bible we didn't believe in, we skipped over those. You see the problem? We believed everything the Bible taught, but there were some things in the Bible that we didn't talk about. Some things in the Bible that uh, we ignored. There are a lot of people who claim Jesus in general, who believe in Jesus sort of as an abstract idea, but don't necessarily live according to the things Jesus said. And sometimes get angry if you remind them of what those things are. That's textbook hypocrisy. If people quote you the words of Jesus and say, this is how you're meant to live, and you say, oh, that, that sounds wrong to me, and yet you claim to follow him, that's hypocrisy, picking and choosing. And for our purposes, it's a red flag. It's something that tells you, hey, wait a second, maybe what I'm doing here is intellectually dishonest. Maybe I'm just trying to get around the call to repentance. People who bend the Bible to endorse the values of the culture are lying to themselves about what Scripture teaches. And people who ignore the Bible to maintain the fiction that they are righteous are simply lying to themselves about themselves. All in an attempt to get around repentance. Even the law of God can be twisted to sidestep repentance. That's what the two episodes in Matthew 19 demonstrate. Like in both cases, the theme that they have in common is the use of the law. And in both cases, people are using the law to sidestep repentance. Now, as I said, we're going to look at each of those episodes in a sermon on its own. So I'm not going to go into all of the details here, just the big picture but I want you to see how these two incidents are connected. In the first episode, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask a kind of two-part question. They start off in verse 3. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus says no. And then when Jesus is done, they kind of hit him with the second part, uh, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're trying to use the law to entangle Jesus. Now, what's happening here is a little bit complex. Like I say, we'll get into it in more detail, but just to give you a flavor of it. So the law of Moses did allow for divorce. And based on that allowance, that principle, the rabbinical tradition that came along afterwards had expanded the grounds. So they took the principle in the law that it was possible to get a divorce, and then they expanded 
all of the different things that would justify it. And now the Pharisees bring the most extreme interpretation, the most extreme theory, basically, that it would be allowed for any cause. These guys are basically thinking that Jesus is going to endorse 21st century values, right? He's doing the very thing, anachronistically, that we just talked about. Like, is it okay to divorce your wife for any cause? And if it isn't, then why did Moses make an allowance for divorce? Well, Jesus explains this as he refutes these things. He says, no, in the first case, it's not okay. He refers them to the example of creation. When they bring up the law, he says the law accommodates this practice because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, the law doesn't always set the standard for perfect righteousness. Sometimes the law regulates unrighteousness. It reigns in human evil. Right, So they're essentially saying that these rabbis who say divorce is permitted for any cause are reasoning from a principle that is found in the law, and they're asking whether that's a legitimate way of interpreting. And interestingly, if you read your Westminster Confession in chapter 1, you'll find that the Westminster divines say that it's not just what Scripture teaches explicitly that is authoritative, it's also what can be deduced by good and necessary consequence. So going to the Bible, finding principles, and then extrapolating from those principles is good interpretation. But Jesus says that's not what you're doing here. You're making a mistake. You're deriving your lessons from the wrong tradition. You're interpreting wrongly. Like the law accommodates human sin because of your hardness of heart, he says. And that sinful hardness is the wrong foundation for interpreting the spirit of the law. Your starting point for thinking about God's intention and God's will shouldn't be the moment where he accommodates sinful hardness of heart, it ought to be the moment where he establishes the perfect principle from which everything else flows. They should start, Jesus would tell them, with the creation ordinance of marriage, which is instituted before the fall, before sin has even happened, marriage is instituted so that Jesus can tell them from the beginning, it was not so. If they were reasoning Rightly, their starting point would be the beginning, that perfect intention of God, and they wouldn't build an edifice on the fall. The fall and its consequences wouldn't be their starting point. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And if they're reasoning in a way where that makes no sense, they're reasoning wrongly from Scripture. So we'll talk about it more next week, but clearly, Jesus doesn't think that the rabbis are following the Spirit's leading in relaxing God's standard. He doesn't think that over time, as the Spirit works, God is revealing that that actually I'm a lot less hung up about this stuff than you people think I am. And I'm a lot cooler as a divinity than you seem to realize. But in fact, it's just the opposite. The standard isn't lower. It's higher than they realize. Jesus thinks they're rejecting the spirit of the law as they reason, that they're bending the law to suit their sinful desires. In other words, they're going to the law and they're making it tell them what they want to hear. 
the operative thing in this scenario is not we went to the book of Leviticus and we just want to faithfully follow what Moses says. The operative motivation here is we want to be able to divorce our wives for any cause without repercussions. And that's the outcome we want, and we reason back from it and justify it, even from Scripture. That logic, the logic of the Pharisees, is alive and well today. You can take literally any sin. If you picture a sin in your mind, something the Bible condemns, when you go home, you can Google it, and you will find some pastor, some theologian, who will explain in in really sophisticated detail why the Bible doesn't condemn the thing that you think the Bible condemns. In fact, it probably celebrates that very thing. Why? Why would it be so easy to find really clever people laying out arguments, getting around even the most explicit prohibitions of the Bible. Because if it's not a sin, you don't need to repent of it, and you don't need to give it up. That's the motivation. If it's not a sin, I don't have to give it up, and I will move heaven and earth to explain to myself and to you why it's not. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. Bending Scripture will let you sidestep repentance. The rich young man has a different problem. When the rich young man comes to Jesus, he's not looking for a way to sidestep repentance, really so it seems, because he doesn't need to repent because people have to repent when they've sinned, and the rich young man has not. How do I inherit eternal life? Easy, Jesus says, you keep the law. That man does not despair when he hears it. He's like, oh good, all these I have kept from my youth. Is there anything else that I lack? Is there more that I need to do? He's eager. Like, I've kept the law, but I was just wondering, like, is there something else I could do to to lock this in? And Jesus is like, oh, uh, yeah, great. Glad you asked. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. That represents a problem to this young man. So again, we'll look at this in more detail in a couple of weeks. But what's interesting here is the way Jesus responds. It's different, right? He doesn't attack the reasoning. Instead, he tests the heart of the man. He introduces the need to sacrifice and then sees how this man responds. It makes sense. Different problems, different solutions. The Pharisees are lying about the spirit of the law, so Jesus refutes them by correcting the foundation of their reasoning. But here's a man who's lying about human nature. He's lying to himself about how righteous he is. And so Jesus refutes him by calling him to Christ-like sacrifice. Self-deception is a powerful force in freeing us from the call to repentance. When this young man believed that the law only demanded things that would cost him nothing, because he'd already done them, he'd already kept them, then he was confident, and he could go to Jesus asking for extra work, for for new assignments. But once he realized the true demand of righteousness Matthew says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
There's an inevitability to the way that Matthew tells that story. And, and you think, well, yeah, right, of course. I mean, this is a problematic teaching of Jesus right here. When he says, keep the law in perfectness and you will inherit eternal life, we're like, yeah, I mean, that's, that is how that works. But when he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me, we're like, well, Jesus, that sounds like communism. Like, I, I have a problem with that. Like, that, that, that's too far. Surely you don't mean li- liquidating my assets will save me. Like, that, that's, that sounds crazy. But again, it's, it's sacrifice. Right? It's the call to sacrifice. But that young man could have responded differently. Right? That didn't have to be the end. Like, if his heart really was where he thought it was, Maybe the natural way to respond to Jesus' words would have been, oh, great, thanks, yes, I'll, I'll get right on that. Let me sell everything, give it to the poor, and then I'll come join you guys, and you'll have another disciple, which will be good, because you might need a spare later on. That's not what happens, though. This perfectly righteous young man, when the God of the universe, the one through whom all things are made, says, all you need to do is sell the possessions that I've provided for you and and give them to the poor and then come follow me where all your needs will be taken care of. All he had to do was say yes to that. But to say yes to that was hard. It was costly. And so, again, he wanted to get around it, right? He experienced sorrow. He experienced despair. If the church today is full of clever sinners who are sidestepping repentance by bending the law, it is also full of willfully blind moralists who are convinced that they are keeping the law, or at least being good enough to be righteous in the eyes of God. Some people convince themselves God is pleased with them because God's standards are so low. Other people, though, convince themselves God is pleased with them because their own conduct is much better than it actually is in the eyes of God. But the thing I want you to understand is that neither one of those responses is an anomaly. There's nothing strange about the presence of those things in the church or in any human culture. Those responses are the norm. That's the default reaction to the call to repentance. When you're called to humble yourself and to turn from your sin and to follow Christ, these are the first places that you will retreat in order not to hear that call. And if you hear it, not to have to answer it. The problem is those default responses are also utterly wrong. You can't follow Jesus while sidestepping repentance. Because when you follow Jesus, the path he takes you down leads you straight to that knot, straight to that complicated, interwoven knot of your sin. And something's got to be done about it. And what he calls us to do is to repent and to believe. Not to despair. It's interesting, that rich young man is not alone in his sorrow. You know who else despairs throughout Matthew 19? The disciples of Jesus. In fact, I would argue the most depressed people in Matthew 19 are the actual people who claim to follow Jesus. Because in both episodes, we get this response, this coda, where the disciples react to what Jesus is saying, and the reaction is not encouraging. When Jesus explains to them, no, no, the Pharisees have marriage all wrong, and God's view of marriage is is up here, the disciples, their takeaway, they say, well, I guess it's better not to marry then. 
Like when they hear the reality, their first response is, I guess we should give up on marriage. And then in the second episode, when Jesus starts talking to them about the difficulty for a rich man to enter into eternal life, their response isn't, well, I'm glad we're not rich. Their question is, well, in that case, who can be saved? Like, they're willing to despair, not just over, like, marriage, uh, happiness in this life, but to give up on eternal life itself as if it's an impossibility based on what they hear. When they realize how high the standard is, their response is to despair. It makes sense. If the law can't be bent and the law can't be kept, then there is no way to attain righteousness in the sight of God. Always assuming that the reason we were given the law was to attain righteousness in the sight of God, which Paul says is wrong. Paul says in Romans 5 that the law was given to, in his words, increase the trespass. In other words, the reason the law was given was not so that you could start being good and keep it. The reason the law was given is so that you could compare yourself to the law and see how far short you fell. That's the purpose. Paul doesn't say that the law was given to increase the trespass so that we might despair. He says the law was given to increase the trespass so that grace might reign to demonstrate that there could be only one solution, to show how all your workarounds, all your sidestepping will accomplish nothing and how the answer that you were given was the right answer and is the only way forward, the actual way of salvation. The path to eternal life is to follow Jesus Christ, to follow him through the knot, not around it. Jesus kept the law without bending one jot or tittle, and through repentance and faith, his righteousness is given to us. It's a cloak to cover us so that we might stand in righteousness before God. So don't despair. Don't despair. It's a hard call. It's a difficult call. It's a hard thing to acknowledge your sin, and it's a harder thing to turn from it. But in the face of that call, don't despair, just repent. Sin is a parasitic corruption, right? Like all parasites, when it's threatened, it fights. It wants to stay in its host. So when sin hears the call to repentance in you, it attacks. It goes on the warpath because it wants to remain in your life. But repentance, Jesus Christ, breaks the power of sin and begins the healing. Your pride will tell you that repentance is too much to ask, and your corrupt desires will tell you that repentance will destroy you. But to give up what the Bible calls you to give up, to turn your back on sin, will unravel your very identity. But none of that is true. These are just lies sin tells you so that it won't be flushed out of your system. Humble yourself before God. Turn from your sin, come to Christ. The cross doesn't sidestep sin. Jesus cuts straight through that knot that binds us. If we're honest about Scripture, if we're honest about ourselves, then the only thing to do is to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ.
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.